think if many of us were honest, we would have to admit that much of the Old Testament is difficult for us to understand. And yet it was Jesus himself who taught that the Old Testament reveals him. It reveals the salvation that he would bring by his life and his death. After his resurrection, he said in Luke chapter 24, Thus it is written, that is, in the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus tells us what the Old Testament is about. He tells us that the purpose of the Old Testament is, is to reveal Him. I think we would all give a yes to that and say, of course. But the question is, how does a book like Job fit with that purpose? How does this unique book declare the sufferings of the Messiah to us? If you've read the book of Job, again, you might have to admit it's a bit hard to understand. We hear Job describe his suffering in hard-to-understand metaphor and this metaphors and these strange poetic imageries. And more than that, it's a massive book, 42 chapters devoted to the suffering of one man. 42 chapters, a whole book in the Bible that this one man, Job, gets devoted to his life. And the question should be, why? Why is a permanent record of his sufferings preserved in God's eternal word? If the principal purpose of the scripture is to reveal Christ, how does the record of Job's suffering fit with that purpose? When we carefully look at this book, what we see is that although it is unique, it fits perfectly with that overall purpose to reveal Jesus. And that purpose becomes especially clear in Job chapter 19. And Job chapter 19 is kind of the center of the book. That purpose to reveal the Lord Jesus. And specifically, Job reveals Jesus as a prophetic type of Christ. His suffering foreshadows the suffering of Jesus as he bore our sin and suffered as our substitute. Just glance at chapter 11. Or, or not chapter 11, verse 11 of chapter 19. And listen to what Job says. God has kindled his wrath against me. You see, statements like that meet their fulfillment in Jesus, who really did have the wrath of God kindled against him for us. And so I want us to think about Job as a prophetic type of Jesus Christ. And my hope in doing so is not only 
for you to be able to see Jesus Christ here in the book of Job, but to, to really become a better reader of the Old Testament and see more of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, if Job is a type of Christ, we might ask, well, what is that? What is a type? Well, a type is simply a historical event, person, or institution from the Old Testament that God designed to foreshadow the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is God himself who gives us this lens. This was the way the Lord taught our Old Testament brothers and sisters in different ways through these types. In Romans 5, Paul, referring to Adam, said Adam was a type of him who was to come. In other words, Adam, in his representative capacity, foreshadowed Christ. Christ would come as the new Adam, our new representative to redeem us. Uh, Hebrews 8 uh, contrasts the heavenly priestly ministry of Jesus with the earthly ministry of human priests. And, and the writer says that all those things that went on on earth were a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They were pictures. They were types. Uh, Paul uses the same uh, typological concept when he says in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ... Our Passover lamb was sacrificed. There's, there's an assumed understanding there that, that the Passover lamb was a type. It was a shadow to point to the true lamb, Jesus. And we could go on and on. The sacrifices, the Passover lamb, the priesthood, the temple, even the Exodus event are all types and shadows of something greater. And that something greater is Jesus and the deliverance that he would bring. But in the book of Job, we enter into a unique area where we see, and God does this often in the Old Testament, where he imprints his message regarding his son onto the life of an Old Testament saint. Think about that. He, he, he often did this. Moses, for example, foreshadowed the prophetic work of Jesus. David, the kingly work of Jesus. Melchizedek, the, the eternal priesthood of Jesus. So I want us to think about how the gospel message regarding Jesus and the salvation that he brings was imprinted on the life of Job. And I want us to begin by, by thinking more broadly about the whole scope of the book and looking at the, the whole trajectory and scope of Job's life and, and think about how that points us to Jesus. And then we'll hone in more on chapter 19 and think about how specifically his, his lonely suffering, his suffering in isolation foreshadowed the suffering of Jesus for us. And then we'll try to tie it all together and think about the relevance for us. Let's first think about his messianic trajectory. I think you may be well aware of the word messianic having to do with the Messiah, having to do with Jesus. 
And I, I stole this from one of my professors uh, who would bring this up in class many years ago, and now I, I'm starting to see it in journal articles and things. And so I, I kind of feel privileged that I was, um, was able to sit under his teaching. But a trajectory is, of course, it's a, it's a path. It's a course that something follows. Kids, you throw a ball. It follows a trajectory. It goes on an arc. And when we think about the messianic trajectory in the Old Testament, it's, it's the prophetic experience of, of being cast down from this exalted position to the depths of great suffering, only to be exalted by God again to an even higher place. We, we could summarize it, and I think I summarized it in your outline. We could summarize this messianic trajectory this way, exaltation humiliation, vindication, and then an even greater exaltation. And that's why we read from Philippians 2. That's the trajectory of Jesus that we see in Philippians 2. We read how Jesus began from an exalted position as eternal God. He then enters his humiliation, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then he's raised. He's vindicated. He is declared to be innocent. And then as we read, God exalted him to the highest place so that every knee should bow at the name of Jesus. And what we see as we read the book of Job and we look at his life, we see that it follows the same trajectory. The first five verses of the book underline how Job began in this exalted position, how great a man he was. He then suffers unjustly as an innocent man, and we read Job say in chapter 19, verse 9, God has stripped, God has stripped him from his glory and taken the crown from his head. Job's humiliation, and yet we, we skip to the end of the book. What's emphasized in chapter 42 is that Job is vindicated by God. He's vindicated, and then he's exalted to an even higher place than at the beginning. Job 42, 12, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And so when we look broadly at the life of Job, we see how the trajectory of his life foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ to accomplish salvation for us, he had to leave his exalted position. He had to humble himself as a servant. He had to endure unjust sufferings, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then upon the completion of his work, he is raised to life and an even greater exaltation as the king. A part of this trajectory that is, that is underlined as well is, is Job's innocence. We, now, I say that, and I was trying to explain this to my kids last night, and it didn't go too well, but innocence in quotes, Job was still a sinner. 
but I think you know what I mean, innocent in human terms. It's emphasized again and again that he suffered as an innocent man. That he was wrongly accused. That he wasn't suffering because of wrongdoing. The book opens with this statement that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And so we might say this book is about the unjust extraordinary suffering of an innocent man. And again, we can hear echoes of Christ's words in in, in verse 6. Know then that God has put me in the wrong. An innocent man who suffers as an evildoer. An innocent man who God puts in, a wrong, in the wrong. You see, it is, it is foreshadowing. It is, it is teaching God's people what Christ would do for his people. He is the truly only innocent man to ever live. The one who never did anything wrong, and yet God put him in the wrong for our sake. Jesus stood in our place, put in the wrong for us, suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And so we see Jesus and the gospel declared in this messianic trajectory. But secondly, I want us to think about, hone in a bit more on chapter 19 and think about Job's lonely suffering. That's really the focus of of chapter 19, that he's forsaken by his friends, his family, and he feels forsaken by God himself. We read this, and it it should be gut-wrenching to us. Here is a man suffering. He's abandoned by everyone. He cries out for pity and for mercy, but his cries for help go unanswered. He received no sympathy, no help in his agony. The emphasis is that this man suffered in isolation. And his lonely suffering, his experience of being forsaken by everyone, is a prophetic glimpse of the experience of Christ who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would be one from whom men hide their faces. I want you to notice, if you have your Bibles open, just glance there at chapter 19. Notice how it's emphasized he was forsaken by his friends. Uh, Verse 19. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. So he's forsaken not just by his three friends, but all his intimate friends. His friends abandon him in his moment of greatest agony. And then look at verse 13. We, We read that he's forsaken by his family. This 
graphic language. It's a language of total abandonment. His brothers are far from him. His family's estranged from him. His relatives have failed him. He's even a stranger to his own wife. Complete abandonment. No friends. No family. No one to help him. He is alone in his suffering. But his lonely suffering reaches its apex and then he felt forsaken by God. Look at verses from verse 6. Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Verse 8. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. Again and again it is emphasized that Job suffered in isolation. Forsaken by friends, family, and even God. He suffered alone. What is the purpose of such an emphasis? Why does this theme of suffering in solitude deserve such attention and such repetition in this book? Why why is this picture painted with such fine detail? When we look at the other Old Testament prophecies of Jesus, especially those messianic psalms, some of which we sung, we find the very same emphasis. A consistent aspect of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament about the work of Jesus would be that the suffering servant would suffer alone in isolation. That no one would come to his aid. And we don't have to look hard at the life of Christ to see him fulfill this prophecy. Is it not highlighted in the Gospels that Jesus was forsaken by his friends? That as Jesus endured his greatest suffering, his moment of greatest trials, that his closest friends abandoned him. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. And all of the disciples forsook him and fled. In his moment of greatest suffering, he stood alone with no one to help. It was part of Christ's experience that was so often foretold in the Psalms. Uh, We sang from Psalm 41.9. Jesus quoted it in the upper room. Warning the disciples about Judas' impending betrayal, the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Christ's intimate friends, those whom he loved, abandoned him. But 
Christ was also forsaken by his family. Again, this is a part of the experience of Christ that was foretold in the Psalms. Psalm 69.8 says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. That's almost identical language to Job 19. And it's, this too is emphasized in the Gospels. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that not even his own brothers believe. And if we think more broadly, Jesus came first to his own. His own people. His own family, Israel. They did not receive him or believe him. So Christ was forsaken by, by friends, by family, but Christ's lonely suffering reached its climax when he was forsaken by his father. You see, just as the abandonment by friends and family was foretold in the Psalms, so was Christ's estrangement from God. We'll sing from Psalm 102 in a moment. In verse 10 of that psalm, we hear Christ speaking prophetically to his father, and he says, Because of your indignation and your anger, you have taken me up and thrown me down. There are those words from Psalm 22. Words that Christ spoke on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Savior experienced the epitome of loneliness. tasted its bitter depths as he gave his life for us. And one writer said it this way, he died on the cross with not a friend on earth or a friend in heaven. He suffered and died alone. Abandoned by everyone, forsaken by his father as an object of his wrath. See, the book of Job is intended to give us insight into the heart of our Savior, into the, the depths that he was willing to go to save us. And what is the relevance for us? Why should we even care about biblical typology? I want to submit to you that it's not some abstract ivory tower theological concept. It, it is the lens through which God himself wants us to read his word in order that we might see the glory of his son. And my former professor who I, I mentioned earlier, he writes this about the importance of typology. He says the experiential medium of typology is the perfect instrument to portray the anguish of mind and spirit that the Savior felt. It is more exact, more passionate, and more personal than any third-person narrative. Above all, it is the spiritual anguish within the experience of divine abandonment that is captured in the mind and words of Job, and which comes to full force 
which the, with the unforgettable words of Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The crowning purpose of the book of Job is to give God's people a subjective sense of the very personal, very human anguish that our Savior had to endure for our sake. Job should be read as a companion to the Gospels and as a window into the heart of our Lord, who loved us enough to suffer in our place. It enables us to see more of Jesus, to get more of a sense of his heart towards sinners like us. But what about this aspect of Christ as the lonely sufferer? Why is this pointed out to us over and over again? Why does it matter for us? We know that Jesus had to die for our sins, but why did Jesus have to die alone for you? Well, first, it shows us that he subjected himself to the full consequences of our sin. You see, the Bible teaches that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God in this life and the next. I think we often forget that. We often think about the eternal consequences of sin. But our sin deserves the full wrath of God in this life. And for Christ to bear the consequences of our sin, he had to bear the full scope of those consequences in this life. Friends, we are told that we are born into this world as children of what? Children of wrath. And that means that we deserve nothing. We deserve to be abandoned by everyone. We don't deserve friends. We don't deserve family. We don't deserve a husband or a wife or children. And we certainly don't deserve the favor of God in this life. Because of our sin, we deserve to suffer alone, abandoned with not a friend on earth or in heaven. And that is why Jesus became for us the lonely sufferer. He bore in this life what our sin deserved in this life. And friends, that is why That is why we can enjoy blessing, communion with one another, communion with our family, and ultimately communion with the Lord himself. But Christ's lonely suffering also ensures that we have a sympathetic Savior who can help us. Hebrews 2.18 says that because he himself has suffered when tempted or tested, He is able to help those who are being tested. Christ's lonely suffering guarantees his sympathy towards us. Because Christ plumbed the depths of suffering, there is nothing that he does not understand. There's no affliction, no trial, no loneliness, no grief 
that he does not understand and sympathize with. He is merciful and understanding toward us because of his lonely suffering. He knows this by experience, and he therefore knows the grace and the strength and the mercy we need in our affliction. But this example of the lonely sufferer does give us an example to follow. In Philippians 2, which we read, we we have the humiliation and suffering of Christ uh, described. But that passage begins with this point. Let this mind be in you. In other words, look to this example. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.21, said, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow that you might walk in his steps. See, our call as followers of Christ is to be obedient, patient sufferers and trusting ourselves to God, knowing that patience and perseverance in suffering is the path to glory. In Philippians 3, Verse 10, Paul uses the the phrase, the fellowship of his sufferings. And that teaches us, I think, that in our afflictions, and the afflictions that we endure, that we should look at those as a comforting truth, as a point of unity with Christ. That any affliction, any sorrow in this life has this Glorious, comforting truth concealed in it. That we are one with Christ, partakers of his nature. It should give us faith to persevere knowing that our Savior suffered and was vindicated and exalted. But finally, the lonely suffering of Jesus ensures a sufficient work by a sufficient Savior. In Hebrews 5.8, we're told that Christ's obedience was tested and perfected through his suffering. His temptation and his affliction in complete isolation only serves to reveal the glory of his obedience. Jesus Christ rendered a perfect obedience and a perfect sacrifice in the worst of circumstances. Compare that with the first Adam. The first Adam was called to obey in the best conditions. He enjoyed presence with God companionship of his wife, a lush garden full of trees to eat, and he disobeyed. But then comes Christ, the second Adam, forsaken by God, no human companions, forsaken by all, and he renders a perfect obedience in the worst 
And it is that perfect obedience that is credited to every sinner who trusts him. That's what the Father sees when he looks on you, is that perfect obedience that the lonely sufferer rendered. And Christ's lonely suffering also highlights the fact that Jesus did it all. No one helped Jesus in his work of salvation. No human being gets honorable mention for helping Jesus in his suffering. He did it all. And friends, does this not make Jesus' obedience shine so much brighter? It reminds us that it wasn't an easy obedience under easy conditions. But obedience in the worst of conditions with no help. Perfect obedience perfected by suffering. There's much more that can be said, I hope, maybe that will pique your interest and help you to read the book of Job and the Old Testament with an eye to Jesus. I hope you can read Job's story. It's a story that is passionately, profoundly about our Savior, about His lonely suffering that He endured on our behalf, about His innocence, His obedience. And as we read it through that lens, I pray it will cause our faith, love, and gratitude to abound more toward our Savior, who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we we glory in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who left the exalted position at your side, the one who was face to face with you from eternity, the one who humbled himself, the one who entered into lonely suffering for us, where we rejoice he has been raised, that he now reigns as our king for us. And we pray, Lord, that we might marvel all the more at his work on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to see more of your glory in your word, especially in the Old Testament. We pray, Lord, that we might be more confident in the finished work of Jesus and his perfect obedience given to us. And we pray, Lord, that we might walk in his steps and that when you choose to bring affliction to us, we might, we might not become bitter, but we might rejoice and see it as a point of unity for the one who suffered for us. We pray that Christ would be glorified. We pray that you would prompt within us gratitude and love for him. We pray in his name. Let's take our Psalter hymnals and we'll open to 102a, one of those psalms that um, I had mentioned that talks about the, the lonely suffering of Jesus. 102a.